0: Welcome to Profiles, from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guests today are Sophia McLennan and Serge Popovich. And they're here to talk about the power of humor and satire in the media, in political discourse, and in social change. At a time when sensitive news stories and sometimes entire media outlets are frequently denounced as fake news, political satire in the U.S. and around the world is on the rise. McLennan and Popovic have devoted a lot of study to how satire can challenge the status quo and in its own unique way sharpen the critical powers of the public. Sergei Popovic is one of the founding members of the Serbian nonviolent resistance movement Otpor. Popovich is also the co-director of the Center for Applied Nonviolent Action and Strategies, or CANVAS, and is the author of Blueprint for Revolution, How to Use Rice Pudding, Lego Men, and Other Nonviolent Techniques to Galvanize Communities, Overthrow Dictators, or Simply Change the World. Sophia McLennan is Professor of International Affairs and Comparative Literature at Penn State University, where she is also Associate Director of the School of International Affairs and Founding Director of the Center for Global Studies. She's written two books on satire in U.S. politics and media, Colbert's America, and Is Satire Saving Our Nation? McLennan and Popovich were recently on the IU campus to talk about Laftivism, The Power of Humor in Nonviolent Struggle. And while they were here, they joined me in the WFIU studios. Sergey Popovich and Sophia McLennan, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Pleasure. I don't want to begin this like a really bad college paper with the Oxford English Dictionary defines satire as, but maybe we should get a little bit semantic at the outset just to kind of, because I'd love to hear both of your definitions, your working definitions of satire as you've come to know it and study it and work with it. So perhaps, uh, Sophia, we should start with you. What, what is satire?
1: So satire is a particular form of comedy that depends on irony. You have all sorts of types of comedy, The most common one that is widely accepted across all human cultures is the type of comedy where we make fun of the human existence. So a lot of bathroom humor, maybe joking when somebody falls over. That's not satire. Satire depends on representing things as they aren't. So let's say you come in and it's totally raining outside, and I say, wow, that's great weather. And you go, yeah, excellent. Neither one of us meant what we just said. So that's irony. There's a gap between what we said and what we meant. And what satire does is it calls attention to sort of misrepresentations, lies, folly, abuses of power by using our irony. So it's a very special type of comedy.
0: I once had explained to me that that there's a difference between sarcasm and irony. That sarcasm betrays intent, but irony is more engages the intellect and makes you responsible.
1: Well, okay. so if we really want to geek out on this, there are other types of irony. There's situational irony. Situational irony would be something like the least qualified person winning the election for president. Just for example, that's what we call situational irony. And that doesn't have any sarcasm. That's sort of a gap between how the world should work and how it did work. Sarcasm is always ironic, and sarcasm, again, has a tendency to have a little bit of what some people will perceive as sort of a superiority, right, I'm being sarcastic because you're being stupid, and people worry that that could carry with it sort of a sense of elitism. Irony in and of itself doesn't have to have that.
2: Now, Sergio, how about you? So how would you define irony? Uh, I'm coming from a very different world, so I'm not into political and social definitions of stuff. What I figured out is, A, that uh, humor works great in many different situations, uh, whether if you're an ugly guy like me and want to get date, or you are in a mobilization position and you want to look cool, or you want to drag attention to what you are talking. So I'm more into the political and social implication of humor and the phenomenon which is a little bit different than the satire, which I like to call loftivism. So what is this laughter element of the activism, how it is different from satire and irony. Laughtivism is more using mocking intentionally in the political behavior, but it has particular effects, specifically in authoritarian regimes, which are the countries my organization mostly operate with. We help crazy people fighting autocrats and amazingly how humor and satire can be effective in these terms. Well, I don't want to overstate things with a kind of a hot-button word, but from what I know of your work, it sounds like it's really weaponized. Uh, Kind of. So basically, to put a little light on it, uh, I started as a student activist back there in Serbia in the 90s, fighting the bad guy named Slobodan Milošević. And at the time, uh, humor was a very important element of all of these protests. First of all, because we are the nation which doesn't say or do anything seriously. We are never taking ourselves too seriously. And also because we grew on a very interesting culture uh, based on Monty Python's Flying Circus, which is a very particular way of British comedy that was popular on the TV when we were a kid. Taking this into the consideration, the humor and mocking of a really nasty guy who committed war crimes. So it's not like you're teasing your neighbor or Sophie over here, the nice lady. It's like (laughs) you're really mocking the guy who is bad, bad, bad. I mean, seriously bad. And then we figure out the variety of reasons why humor works in particular. Why it is important for the morale of your troops, for example, because people feel great if something is funny. Why it helps people join groups, because the people join the groups who does something cool. Of course, Sophia knows the psychological background of it, but think of yourself for a moment. Who is the most likable person in your environment you want to be around? The most clever one, the most educated one, the one with thickest uh, wallet, or the person who can always make you laugh? Everybody wants to be around pranksters. So if your movement is a prankster type of movement, it will attract a very cool people. And with cool people, there will come more people because people like to be around the cool people. And winning in nonviolent movement is all about gaining numbers. So it has a huge effect on movement dynamic, whether or not you're using humor and how you're using it. Okay, so it looks like the ball's been thrown to you, Sophia. So why is this? You study
0: this effect. Why are we drawn to humorous things? Why is it so effective at catalyzing things or or making people attractive or, or attracting people to movements or anything, really?
1: At a very basic level, it has to do with pleasure. One of the things that was especially interesting in the United States after the 60s was that we started to form this idea that progressive politics had to be serious. It's an extremely interesting trajectory in the landscape of US left politics. I still encounter it, right? People will say, well, this thing these students are doing, this hashtag thing, that's not real political action. We crafted this idea that politics and political movements in this country had to be serious. Mm. And part of it maybe was a little bit of guilt over all the hippie stuff. I don't know. But in any case, what we found is that because of that, the left sort of abdicated the fun that Serge is talking about. And so it isn't until Occupy Wall Street when we finally get a real movement on the ground that is appealing to young people and is, in fact, changing the public narrative, because now everybody knows what the 1% is. People talk about Occupy as not having been very successful, but think about it. They reframed how everyone understands class inequality in this country. And they did it with a lot of fun from the very beginning occupy had sort of a playful laughivist angle to it at the same time we've been seeing it through the ways in which millennials engage in politics using hashtags one of the fun things was the shutdown pickup lines after the government shutdown i could recount some. Let's see if I can tell one that would be okay on the radio. I must be from the 1%, and you must be from the middle class, because all I want to do is bleep you. (laughs) Ah, yes.
0: (laughs) Thank you, by the way, for providing your own bleep. That saves on production costs a lot. (laughs) But it also seems like there's a lot of creativity involved in this, because you mentioned the Occupy Wall Street movement, and I think of things like the, the mic check, which made me think of combating societal problems through satire, as an example of creative problem solving. Because for satire, you need some intellectual rigor.
1: We have a lot of data on this. We know for a fact that people who produce and consume satire, sarcasm, and irony are simply smarter than people who do not. We know that they are more creative than people Mm -hmm. who do not, which means that they can think of different ways of solving problems. But one of the pieces of research that I find most fascinating is that people who produce and consume satire, sarcasm, and irony are also better at reading others, which means that if you're being sarcastic, I get it. I know that was sarcasm. And there's some pretty conclusive research that there are segments of the population that really don't get irony. And that goes hand in hand with not being as intelligent and with not being as creative. And so again, thinking of the cognitive abilities. Satire is an extremely good part of life just because it helps you process the world better. I mean, that goes sort of alongside the idea that when I'm engaged in a political movement, that's also pleasurable because I'm having fun. Mm. That's also another way to keep me going the next time. So there's all of these different ways in which, again, the pleasure of the, the mental space, when you say something, you say a pun and I get it that feels good. But even more important is that I will remember it better. So if you use sort of, they found that if you infuse sort of comedic, ironic things into your teaching, the students will remember that better than if you teach it straight.
0: You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane, and I'm speaking with Professor Sophia McLennan author of Is Satire Saving Our Nation? and activist Sergei Popovich, author of a book with one of the longest subtitles I've ever seen, Blueprint for Revolution, How to Use Rice Pudding, Lego Men, and Other Nonviolent Techniques to Galvanize Communities, Overthrow Dictators, or Simply Change the World. An example of the creativity that's involved in bringing irony to a social change environment uh, I think of one that is mentioned in
2: your book, Sergio, which is the uh, the Lego protests of Siberia. Oh, yes, I, I mean, the part of my book, Blueprint for Revolution, is searching Laftivism, just to make sure what irony and Laftivism are two different things in one thing. Laftivism involves planning for tactics and the brainstorming in front of tactics. And it also involves a dilemma component. It is absolutely unimaginable if you don't take into consideration the reaction of the opposite side. Actually, it is the reaction of the opposite side that you are provoking that really matters. So one of the first things we did in Serbia back there in the 90s was bringing a petrol barrel with Milosevic's face in a a Serbian version of Fifth Avenue, or the main shopping district, and then a little baseball bat next to it. So you put a coin in the barrel and you buy yourself right to play a little bit of the pinball, meaning you can have a bat and just hit... The, you just, just whack the big oil. Yeah, drum. just whack the. Express your love for Mr. President that way, <laughs> and of course it's very loud and it draws a lot of people in, and people are having fun. And you have this very relaxing atmosphere of political protest in a brutal dictatorship, which, as Sophia says, is very important how people feel doing this stuff. It's not only how it looks on camera, but also the people who participate in the experience will go out and tell a story, and then we pull back. And the people are having fun. Kids are hitting the barrel. And now what happens is that the funny part starts when the police arrives. Because <laughs> this is the dilemma element we are talking about. And what they will do, they will arrest us. No, we are nowhere to be seen. They will arrest downtown shoppers, take them to police station, and accuse them for what? Yeah, arrest are them they for lost? what? For what? And they will sue them, probably. And then, of course, because they need this thing to stop, they arrested the barrel. Now, they are turning into the punchline because the bottle has been drugged into the police car and everybody is taking phones up and, you know, making photos and videos. Similarly, fast forward to 2011, stolen elections in Russia. They were just stuffing boxes a little bit too much. And then somewhere they got putting out a little bit more than 100 percent, which was kind of making people angry. And what people were doing, they were protesting standardly on the street with marches and stuff like that. But there were places where protest was banned. And when you're in this type of environment, also conditions make you think creatively. Because if you can't really go on the street and march, which is what everybody first thinks when it comes to the protests, what can you do? And this is where you start thinking and talking. So people are bringing toys out to the city square and they build a little Lego town and they have a little... Lego soldiers and kinder toys, you know, with a little transparents, like a little penguin saying 137% for Putin. They're all holding signs and stuff. Yeah, all of these toys were holding signs. We so have this beautiful Lego town, downtown Barnaul, Siberia, which is a small place, very distant from Moscow. And there is actual footage of the first day of the protest. We can see police is having videos and everybody is having fun. So this is not like there is no tension. Everybody knows everybody. We feel great. The problem starts around the 700,000 views of this thing during the night. So among these views, there is somebody from Kremlin. So now these guys are figuring out what to do because, you know, it's like the phone rings of the chief of the police station in Bernal. He gets this call. He needs to stop this, so the poor soul needs to go in front of the cameras and (laughs) does the official statement that the protest of 100 legal toys and 50 toy soldiers and 20 toy cars is banned because the toys are not citizens of Russia, and it's not constitutional to protest if you are not a citizen of Russia. They are probably made in China or something like that, or they could buy them toy passports maybe next time. But the trick is here. This is the message you send You are operating in a country where the top leader spends a lot of time posing shirtless and wrestling with tigers and saving dolphins from drowning because (laughs) he needs this mucho macho image of himself or testing the nukes in front of the journalists and things of that kind. And he's afraid of toys. So this is the message. Putin is afraid of toys. And this is what you get. Now, think about the position of the opponent in this case. This is where the dilemma element comes in. You're putting your opponent between the rock and the hard place. If he reacts like he did and banned the toy protests, he will look stupid and everybody will have fun. If he doesn't react, people will understand that they can get away with it and they will replicate the tactic. The ingenuity of this is not only the humor component, but the dilemma component. So you are actually marrying The idea that Sophie is talking about the power of humor and satire and people feeling good and people feeling more intelligent and smart with something Gandhi patented with the salt march. Salt march was the first documented dilemma action. Gandhi marched to make salt because everybody needs salt because the Brits were taxing salt in colonial India and because the fine for this was small. So he was intentionally breaking the ban. And he would march into the sea, 40,000 people with him, and he says, I'm going to be the first one to make the salt. So what will you do? If you arrest me, I'll be out of jail, I will pay a fine, I will be a hero, and I will become a national leader, which he did. And if you don't, everybody will stop paying taxes on salt. So this is like, if you do what I want, you lose. If you do something else, you will lose. And the beauty of these type of actions is that they, once they start working, they trigger the new creativity. And the new groups come in. There's at least 15 different ways how the activists are tackle the potholes. Potholes are now the big thing. You know, you have a pothole in the street and you have a mayor who doesn't pay the pothole. So three great cases. There is an activist from Latin America who puts flowers in the potholes and makes a little video of a beautiful flower which was grown out of the pothole. And then the video goes viral, and of course, everybody sends it to the mayor. Then there is a group of activists in Yekaterinburg uh, where mayor have promised to put a pothole. So the street artists will go, and they will draw the face around the hole. So the hole would be mouth, and around the hole, there will be a (laughs) face. So why? Because it's a behavioral thing. When you hit the pothole with a car, you curse. So what he did, he just personalized your curse towards the person who should fake the pothole. Now, because it's Russia and they're answering very similarly to different online action, what the government of the city done, they came, they clean the pictures, but they left the pothole.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so there are many creative things you can do. And I think that it's highly underreported how important this is for how people feel about change. Because as you said, I was always thinking about the revolutionaries. And so when you look at the, you know, Che Guevara or Mao or even Castro at the beginning, all these people were serious, grim faces. And there is this very wrong approach that of course they need to be serious because they're involved in a serious business of revolution. When you look at the occupy the demonstrations, they look like festivals.
0: Your story gives me some inkling of kind of how we got to the cultural moment we are now, the use of this kind of creativity. But Sophia, I think you'd probably have more to say about this too, because here we are, and this is I think a matter of public record now, there have been studies from the Pew Research Center, et cetera, about how people are getting more of their information and are being made more aware of political goings on from the satirists, from from humor sources than from what you would call legitimate media outlets. So. How did we get here? What elements combine to bring us to this point where that is the reality of things?
1: Well, that's sort of a corollary part of the story of satire and politics that's very different from sort of the laftivism, the satirical action that Serge is talking about. One of the ways we got to the place where more people are getting their news from satirists than from the traditional news is because the traditional news is really bad. The concept of the news was that it would be the watchdog, right, it would be the watchdog over politicians, it would inform the public, it would keep everyone in check, it would be a source of objectivity and truth, and it would allow people to get actionable information they could use to be citizens. Over time, and, uh, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail, but a series of things happened in the United States that really took the possibility of our news media functioning as a watchdog off the table. A couple of key pivot points are the beginning of the 24-7 news cycle. So you can go back and blame CNN for one of the major reasons why the news isn't doing what it used to do. And that's because there just isn't 24-7 of news. So what happens is that rather than have someone come on and just say, this is what happened this day, here's the details, which is what I consumed as a little girl. I watched Walter Cronkite and then we would eat dinner and we would talk about what we time saw. It was
0: for the news.
1: That's correct. So what happens now is that you get these little snippets of the information and then you get pundits who, as Colbert said on his very first show, feel the news at you. That is an Mm. extremely bad thing for democracy because rather than get the facts and form an opinion, I'm now watching people with opinions fight. So the quality of what people consume in the news media, and we could talk about print and the other ways in which those things have diminished in their sort of ability to be effective forms of reporting, what that did was it left a gap. And really it's the work of Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert that starts to flip it. And there's substantial data that shows that the people that were watching those shows were more informed on public issues than people who were watching any cable news of any kind. And in fact, some of those studies showed that if you watched Fox News, you were less informed than people who watched no news of any kind. So that's also because there was so much false reporting. The satirist will tell you that the last thing they want to do is be a source of news. I mean, even john oliver who has an entire team of people researching his stories will say i'm a comedian i'm here to be funny and so what happened was it was really more a retreat on the side of the news media in informing the public and instead in hyping hysterical sort of soap opera scandal crisis as well as a lot of other problems you know not to go into too many of the details but we have lots of clear data on sort of the retreat of the news media from informing the public. And so satire steps into that bubble and it is able to inform the public because it is in fact giving people the actual information that they really need stripped down, but then wrapped up in irony, Mm. which, as I told you before, helps the brain be more nimble, be more creative, be more intelligent, especially in the face of lies, deceptions, and misinformation. For instance, after 9-11, when you had the Bush team lie 935 times to the U.S. public in a four-month span, we now have an administration that has beaten that record, you know, what does the public need? It needs not just the truth. It needs the ability to process lies. And so satire does both things. It's giving you the truth and it's giving you a skill set. You know, that's sort of the short answer of why we've seen that step into that space and become so significant.
0: I think we've happened upon my first devil's advocate moment. And I want to push back on something you said, if I may, because I wonder about it, especially now. Is it really true that the defense that's used by the satirists is, hey, we're just comedians here. The last thing we want to do is be real influencers of political thinking or real sources of the news. Uh, you gave an interview not too long ago about the time that Jon Stewart was stepping down as host of The Daily Show and saying that it was a loss, that it was kind of a, a, a moment that hurt the democratic potential of our nation. And you also described him, you described Jon Stewart in a way that I found thought-provoking, you said he was something of a kingmaker. You had people like Stephen Colbert, John Oliver, or indeed Samantha B. Samantha B. Uh, and also Trevor Noah himself. Mm-hmm. You know, you think of the line, an almost regal succession of the next generation of satirists, and then you have John Oliver around about 2015 with the net neutrality show when they crashed the FCC website with the amount of responses he got. And it seems to me when I see his program, he's doing this more and more to wage real influence. So is it really true that they're just comedians still in this moment?
1: Well, okay, so there's a number of things there and you are both right and not exactly right. So first of all, no political comedian will come out and say, I'm trying to change how the world works because that's sort of the game. They will always deny, 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 right? And they will say, I'm here to entertain. I'm an entertainer. Stewart and Colbert all the time used to say, we're on Comedy Central. Stewart would say, look, my show comes on after a sock puppet. Give me a break. So that's the line. That's the party line. But it's my job to determine whether or not they have political impact, and they do. There's no question that Stewart had political impact. If the goal of the show were to inform the public first and then be about satire and comedy second then they would have to cover different types of stories when they're sort of sussing out what stories are gonna get covered you have to remember when you're on these four five night-a-week shows they have to come up really fast right they get in they start figuring out what's been happening in the last um, news cycle by around three o'clock in the afternoon they've windowed it down to the stories they're gonna I mean they are writing under massive pressure right all of the writers that work on these shows will tell you that they're going to throw out the story that isn't easy to make jokes about. So just to give you an example, the Trans-Pacific Partnership was almost never covered on any of the satire shows, despite the fact that arguably, from the perspective of people in the United States, it was a serious issue. It was an issue that if you were interested in getting your public to pay attention to something that they should be connected to, you would have done that. But they didn't. Why? Because they couldn't figure out how to make it funny how do you make funny when the Native Americans are being corralled by rabid dogs and out there freezing to they couldn't figure out how to make jokes out of it so that's a pretty good example of how don't expect the satires to cover everything that you need covered if you're trying to pay attention to current political issues on the other side though it was true especially in the case of Jon Stewart that because he had the bully pulpit that he had he was able to mobilize and in fact Engaged the public in a range of critical issues that they would have, you know, not necessarily paid attention to. And one of the very best examples was that Stewart was very committed to covering the story of how the first responders at the World Trade Center were not getting the health care support they needed. He brought them on his show, he engaged the issue again and again, and eventually. A law is passed, and many people think that Stewart was the reason why those guys, men and women, have the health care they need. Another example is Stephen Colbert opening up his own super PAC as a way of informing the public about campaign finance. There's a direct cause effect or like you said, Oliver, net neutrality. Also, he did a great bit on televangelism and their tax-exempt status that really put that on the radar.
0: You get a huge response for that.
1: Correct. So... There's a lot of cases where I can show cause effect between the satire and political impact, but it's a mistake to think that that's what those guys are doing as their very first order of business.
0: You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guests are two specialists in the power of political satire. Sophia McLennan and Sergey Popovich. I'm trying to find other ways in which your Venn diagrams overlap as much as possible. You know, when you contemplate the idea of laughtivism, humor, the power of humor in nonviolent struggle, or the power of humor and satire in the media and in political discourse. For this, I need the help of Alan Alda. I I keep thinking of the moment in Crimes and Misdemeanors when he says, if it bends, it's funny. (laughs) If it breaks, it's not funny. I don't know. It
1: depends on what's breaking. Well, what I'm wondering
0: (laughs) is is, is if the status quo breaks and becomes an improved situation, is it not funny anymore? I guess that's my question. is, Is there kind of a tipping point? Do you need an unsatisfactory condition? for satire to be most effective?
1: Well, look, human beings are always ripe for satire. We're constantly doing stupid things. But we have research, again, that shows that there's really a direct corollary between crisis and satire, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what Serge is saying. Like, if you're living under a repressive regime, and you have very limited ability to express yourself in the sort of public sphere, you will get a lot of satire it is going to be under the radar it's going to be in little clubs but human beings respond to abuses of power by mocking them it's just it, every I would, I would every agree culture across Absolute. time
2: and also it's like the the question is how unfavorable i mean we have many examples where this i was just mentioning the potholes so it's not only about the very unlivable conditions it's how the i think uh, the real power of people power movements in the world and also data shows that the majority of the protests nowadays, actually the country with the largest number of protests in the world, is China. They just don't get reported. Majority of these protests are displaced people complaining about the coal mines because, you know, they're kicking them out of villages to build coal or, you know, the coal kills their environment and things of like that. So if you take a look at the environmental and anti-corruption protests. They are dominating the world arena. Actually, the protests around the human rights and civil wars and war crimes are getting better documented in media, but that's just the perception. Reality, people get pissed off and a healthy democracy demands uh, people who are active. It's not enough to have rules in place. You need to have people who are holding their elected representatives accountable and that doesn't necessarily only reflect democracy or you know these big issues it reflects deliverables and i think the humor is very good in reporting on small things and mobilizing people around the small things and as sophie just said also putting the radar screen back to the things which really matter which go under reported under the existing news cycle so if you take a look at the for example, situations like you have a, some of the funniest protests in the world are happening now in Romania where the government tries desperately to reverse anti-corruption law. So, you know, the ruling party had a president who was under the scrutiny and the guy just say, OK, I, I want power. I want my MPs to vote that you don't get prosecuted if you abuse less than 23,000 euros the guy abused 24,000 euros. I mean, are you kidding me? Okay, we are talking about democracy, the country which is in European Union. Millions of people are every, like the guy became the punchline for everything. You know, the Facebook posts, Twitters, hashtags, street demonstrations, people wearing his image in a jail suit, on a t-shirt. Like it's a burst of mocking this person. And he's a democratically elected politician in a democratic country. So you don't really need a bad dictator to be funny about your stuff, you really need a, a creativity and a core group of people that understand that it is the mobilization around the issues that keeps democracy healthy. And this is not the trademark of one part of the world or the another. Of course, the more oppressive your opponent is, the bigger the risk for using this. If you are Bassem Youssef, the iconic satirist from Egypt, you may get expelled, You know get the family, get frats, and things of that kind, whether you know if you're John Stewart, it won't happen to you. But basically, the thing is here, if you understand that you need to be active about the status quo, and if there is one thing that pisses you off in the status quo, and if you add a little bit of humor and loftivism at it, it will work better.
1: Since um, Sergio brought up Bassam Youssef, that is part of the story of like why satire is important in moments of political tension and crisis. Bossum in his book, Revolution for Dummies, has a line where he says, you can't be afraid when you're laughing. And so the other critical part of satire in these types of moments is that, look, you get tired when you're trying to call attention to abuses of power. You get tired when it feels like you're fighting something you can't win. Mm. And when you have that moment of that release of, again, going back to the moment of pleasure from it, it helps you survive it. Yeah, just it helps to... you get up the next day and keep doing yeah, it. Yeah, but
2: just jump to the end of it. It's also a psychology of the human being. If you're looking at the engine of social change and you're looking at the biggest obstacles or the supporters for status quo, It's fear in autocracy and it's apathy in democracy. So these are your two enemies, to name them that way. So humor works great with both. Imagine life situation, you are getting ready for a surgery or visit to the dentist, depending on what terrifies whom. (laughs) But so now I'm a doctor and I'm coming to, and said, listen, This is going to happen. We're going to open your chest. We're going to put these beautiful metal objects in. (laughs) This is what we're going to cut. And of course, you're getting more and more afraid. You don't want to hear about this procedure. If I crack the joke, you laugh. Something which is seriously terrifying, like a serious surgery, really kind of disappears in this burst of humor. Let's look at the apathy as the issue. Have you ever sit at a boring party? nobody's having fun, everybody's, oh, why the heck I'm here? And then immediately somebody comes in who is a prankster, and the whole atmosphere on this boring, apathetic place changes. So if you take a look at the very status quo pillars, which are fear and apathy, humor, generically for us as a human being, really solves it. So like when you look at the role of humor of social change, it's a threefold. First, it breaks fear and apathy. Second, it adds the cool factor, as I mentioned at the beginning. And you want to be cool. And it's like, this is like not only the, that we have this terrible problem with, with progressives, we're having it all the way the place. When I was a kid, being activist means being uh, everything but cool, meaning the old ladies fighting for rights of dogs or complaining about the parking or the loud music or, you know, so these were activists. So now, when you add the cool factor, it can change amazing stuff. The psychology of the Serbian student movement, which we later discovered applies to many movements that my group was working with, was that you know, it's like 1996. You're a student of the college, good-looking, driving a good car, coming from good family, exercising regularly, and a champion of the local soccer or football team. And you're studying. Everybody else is protesting. You're not protesting. Nobody wants to date you. You're a Weirdest nerd in the universe with the thick glasses who has a megaphone and leads the protest in the street. You get all the best dates. You're a rock star. So it's like this is how this cool culture can change stuff. And then it grows into the position where it also deals with the oppression. So it's like 998, if you are a good-looking, blah, 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 let's repeat the whole story, then you are not sexy at all. But if you got arrested seven times, you're a champion. So it like a cool factor that starts with humor can change what is really cool. When you look at what's cool and what's not cool and talking out of the politics. There's an amazing book by a friend of mine, Tina Rosenberg, about how peer pressure changes the society. There are amazing things happening when the peer pressure comes in. This thing, what is cool, what is not cool. There is a group of teenagers that made smoking non-cool. As opposed to you know having these guys with the cigarettes in TV studios for years, the idea was to mobilize the peer pressure, so it's peer to peer thing. There was a group, another group of teenagers who made the behavior towards HIV positive people in terms that you kind of stigmatize them, not cool. So it's like you can take the social problem and use cool non cool factor in order to change the pattern of the behavior. And I think these are tremendously important elements of any kind of positive social change, and I'm not talking only politics here. What you're talking about
0: makes me think about
2: social media, and I suppose
0: it's inevitable that we talk about social media in this discussion, but both this cool factor and this peer pressure element seem to be kicked into high gear by social media. It just You're making me think about it differently, where it seems like Everyone gets a piece of that. Everyone gets an opportunity, a little bit, day by day, to be the cool kid, the first person to post the meme, the person who has the witty response in the comments section. What do you think about the role that that has in allowing the immediacy of irony in social change to kind of ratchet itself up?
1: Well, so one of the things that I worked on in one of my books was that I developed the idea of the citizen satirist, so this is the non-professional satirist, the everyday average citizen, who is able to engage somehow in a particular conversation and throws a tweet out there, even better, a tweet with a meme in it. And suddenly it's retweeted a hundred thousand times. This is constantly happening now. There are people, average citizens today, that have satirical Twitter accounts with half a million followers, it's a huge part of the political landscape. So every time, for instance, President Trump tweets, somewhere on the order of 75 to 80% of the tweets back at him are ironic, sarcastic, satirical, mockery. And this is a really interesting political moment because this is the first time that we've had a president who is trying to bypass the media and speak directly to the public at this level. But it's also the first time that the public's been able to talk right back. Now, of course, it's skewed. It's skewed to the kind of people who navigate Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a very interesting component of this. The other thing that I think very significant, is the sort of synergy between this citizen satirist and young people, millennials. Mm. And I write that, you know, for millennials, satire is their political idiom. It's how they interact. And for them, it isn't about apathy and cynicism. It's how they get connected, because they get connected through making the joke. They get connected through controlling the narrative themselves. They get connected through being the one that did create the funny hashtag. You think and look over in any given social media cycle how many average citizens have shaped the public conversation in a substantial way simply by being the one that created the hashtag that took off. Now, sometimes it is sort of a political operative or a Russian somebody who does that, but it is often average citizens too. And that is um, a really interesting moment, you know, I think, in the sort of development of our political discourse.
2: Yeah, but also when you look at how the new media and social media actually are shaping the social movements and basically participation of the people, on the good side of it, this is exactly what Sophia said, it makes a lot of citizen Satirist and citizen, citizen journalism is very important because you can also report about the stuff. You don't really need expensive equipment to report on a big thing. And then the second part, it makes mobilization organization faster and cheaper. So you don't really need to spread these leaflets to assemble people in one place. And then last but underreported, the thing which I'm mostly passionate of with this internet era is that people can learn horizontally. So somebody is doing something funny here in Indiana, somebody sees it in Iowa, somebody sees it in Taiwan, and then they can replicate the thing which is working, whether this is a nonviolent tactic, or this is the way you use humor, or this and that. But uh, never forget that uh, every coin comes with two sides. So on the bad side of it, uh, the bad guys are using this technology to monitor, surveil, troll, hate speech, censor, follow you back to the source, or whatever. And uh, also, there is a part of this called collectivism, which is, which I'm really afraid of. So it's like the answer to the question, how many polar bears you have saved this morning by clicking like on the Facebook? The change is happening in the real world. And even the strongest social media campaigns, like the most effective ones, needs to have a leg in the real world. Think about Ice Bucket Challenge. Ice Bucket Challenge was successful in pointing attention to a deadly disease and raising funds for a disease that nobody could name before the Ice Bucket Challenge, in terms that you do something funny in the real life, like pouring the cold water on you, and then, of course, making a little video and posting it on social media. But the key is that you are challenging to do the same the people you know from the real world. So this is the real world component. You are donating money in the real world. And then you use social you dive into the social media landscape and then it spreads, and then your friend is doing this, then she's doing this in the real world. And she's challenging her friends to do it in the real world. So it's a mixed bag. Also it comes with a kind of intellectual laziness of a kind that the use of Twitter, like for example, Twitter is particularly interesting. So I think whom would I recruit for my struggle in 992? And, of course, the people were meeting in the coffee shops and bars and things of that kind, and they were talking change in Serbia and how Milosevic is bad and what we can do, blah, blah, blah. Now, all of these people spend all of their time and energy basically farting about the social change on Twitter, but not doing anything meaningful. So the part of this culture is also despising people who do things because talking about things is cool. But doing things is, you know, you can get cursed on Twitter.
0: Commenting about things is cool. So in other words, the things that you'd make an ironic comment about, is that what you're saying? That sometimes that doesn't set the bar high enough for involvement in social change?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting though because I've done a bunch of research on not just clicktivism, but what's called slacktivism, right? Which is often associated with millennials and this idea that they're not legitimate political actors because they're tweeting or signing petitions or clicking on things. One of the facets of that research that is important to kind of draw out here is the fact that there's no data to back up the concept that people are pulling away from political participation because they're doing these less effective means. And again, not to dispel the idea of meeting in the cafe versus the creation of the social media world, but what we're finding is that young people today are more politically engaged than we've seen in decades. and. What we're also finding is that the zero-sum theory, that if I engage in social media, then I don't go Mm -hmm. to a march. If I engage in social media, then I don't call my representative. If I engage in social media, then I don't like the real activists, there's actually no research to support that that is true at all. In fact, what we find is that it is on a spectrum, on a continuum, and that it's exactly the same people who launch the satirical hashtag, who help organize a protest, who do call their representatives, and who maybe are even running for their school board in Mm. their local community. Young people today donate more blood than boomers. They are engaged at a local community level that most people don't want to recognize. When this conversation came up about slacktivism, it was interesting because I had a student who was a millennial who wanted to write a paper on slacktivism. And I said, okay, go ahead, see what you can come up with. And at the same time, I started doing my own research. And when she starts coming to me with her paper and I said, your research is skewed, you're not looking at the whole picture. You need to really catch the true picture of what's happening here. And I said, I, I find it really fascinating that you yourself want to denigrate your own generation. And that just shows you how effective the public has been at making fun of millennials and the ways in which they're politically active. But when you really get down to it, and uh, you know, the exciting thing that I can report is that it isn't one or the other. In fact, it's this and that. And that's exciting, really, really exciting, I think, about this new era of social media and getting out in the streets and doing things in the real world.
0: Speaking of the real world, let's talk about hobbits. (laughs) Sergio, you have talked about hobbits as being an example of the common people change, something more like the citizen activist, the citizen satirist how did you arrive at this particular metaphor, this notion that it's, uh, it's, it's the hobbits who are really changing things?
2: Well, I mean, the, but first of all, this is uh, my personal passion or even religion. If you consider where the Bible would be in your home, this is where all the talking books are in my home. I have a little temple with all of the characters and action figures and to the big fun of my kids who are now growing enough to understand this. And I grew up uh, with this idea of hobbits. And hobbits are this uh, small, short... Uh, down to earth, uh, we like good food and good drink and calm life type of characters, which get drowned and drugged into the big conflict and big things and fighting the big evil, the same way we were. And we started the winning against milošević in Serbia, where we understand that all the wizards and elves and people with their shiny armors and all the opposition leaders with their great speeches and all the international community representatives with their planes and bombs and sanctions can do nothing about our Sauron. And the only way to defeat Sauron is that if we take the ring to Mordor and there is nobody else to do the job. So this is where I see this relationship between you know Frodo the Hobbit stepping in because nobody else can solve the problem and taking destiny into his own little tiny Hobbit hands or fingers in case of the ring, is what we actually did in Serbia. And when you take a different uh, places and then researching into social movements, because research in social movements is also my passion and my work, you will see that a lot of these changes were were driven by hobbits. Uh, Martin Luther King uh, was not a Harvard graduate. He was a village priest. I mean, let's talk honestly. Like Lech in Poland was electrician with no formal education at all. Serbian struggle, Egyptian struggle, run by a bunch of students. So not really the people in shiny armor and intellectuals. And when you look at the numbers, you see that actually the social movements are the best vehicle for common people to join the social change, as opposed to different types of change, military change, political change, which is mostly driven by the elites. So it is the people power movement that require people for change. And this is where the people can really participate and step in and they count. So I think there is every connection in the world between the Hobbits and the uh, political movement. And one great thing about The Hobbits, which I noticed with social movement, if you watch The Lord of the Rings, and if not, go watch it now, I'm advertising heavily here, Hobbits have fun all the way. They're the funny ones. All the dramatic situations never kill the spirit of them being funny and making jokes about everything, even in the darkest murkiest situation it is their humor and lightheadedness which keeps them all the way also great thing if you notice the great leaders the great people are always those who never take themselves too seriously and this is the type of leadership you are looking into people power movements go back to putin and the toy protest the reason why people in power do not know how to respond to loftivism is that by virtue of watching their faces on billboards and walls and TV screens, they just take themselves too seriously. And when they take themselves too seriously, this is your chance to really attack them.
0: Sergey Popovich and Sophia McClennan. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. One thing that I see a lot when I log into the internetosphere these days is a headline that says, as a disclaimer, not the onion. (laughs) And I'm wondering if both of you can comment on whether or not we're kind of in an arms race with absurdity right now, where one of the issues, maybe a problem with the power of satire in a a political or a social arena, is everything trying to kind of out-ridiculous Each other.
1: Well, that's actually the book I'm working on now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't want to tread on that. So typically, right? The satirist trades in exaggeration. You exaggerate the real. A parody, for instance, which is what Stephen Colbert was on his show, was supposed to be an exaggerated version, basically, of Bill O'Reilly. We're now in a moment where satire can't exaggerate the real. Because the real is already so over the top, so sometimes laughably unbelievable, that what it's doing is sometimes playing the straight to the real. And rather than being an exaggeration, it's delving into the side of this where you're saying, did that really happen? That's the irony. Like, wait a minute. So in the real world, this is what happened today? So for instance, if you look at Colbert's monologues, as he's opening up the late show most nights he says okay so this happened did it I mean that's really all he has to do because he, he's not going to exaggerate it and then the other thing that of course is really in the land of satire that's important is that it calls out faulty logic so when you're calling out faulty logic, you don't necessarily have to exaggerate. But you might say, for instance, in the, in the scenario where, uh, you know, talking about, for instance, whether or not there was Russian meddling in the election. So the Trump administration says, well, look, wasn't this Obama's problem? So Colbert says, look, I was running for sheriff and shot someone. And then I got elected sheriff, but wouldn't it have been the sheriff before me that should have investigated it? So, you know, he's going, excuse me, wait, who was the one who committed the crime? Wait, you're switching this around. So he just does a joke that makes it very easy for the public to process how absurd it would be to say, well, you can't blame me because even if I did commit the crime, I wasn't president when I did it. And wouldn't it be the president's fault if that was what? So the reason why you have to do that is because these narratives are pushed out into the public and the public starts to become dizzied by Mm. it. And the satirist, weirdly, is using what should be sort of spectacle of humor to Mm -hmm. actually expose the spectacle of politics. And that is the part that's the very particularly distinct part of Trump era satire
0: is there a danger of us all becoming cynical about this becoming kind of inured to this because of that very thing that you just mentioned
1: well i always say you can't become cynical of something that does not deserve your cynicism so i'm not sure that you should be blaming the satirist for the cynicism or perhaps it's the system itself and you Are just having the appropriate response to it. I think we don't want to be apathetic. I think some cynicism is, you know, look, if a system is broken and I'm cynical about the system, that's okay. Apathy is different. Apathy is disconnected. I'm done. I'm not going to bother with it. But I don't believe that we've seen any sign of that. If anything, right across the United States today, there are more people engaged Absolutely. in every form of political involvement. Again, whether it's their school board, or whether it's marching for gun rights or against assault bans and all that. So, if people are involved in a range of political issues, whether it's health care, whether you know, environment, it's the environment. At a level that the United States simply has not seen since the Vietnam War. So, but I think it also, there's...
2: it also, I mean, to move from that phenomenon into the phenomenon of where you are in in your history. I'm I'm a foreigner, but I teach here, so I kind of getting there and talking to students all time long. I spend about around three months of my life in U.S. every year. So you're right; it's the engagement is there. But that reminds me of the situation in my country, and it was not only about having the very bad government or very good government is having the political elites that are completely disfranchised from the people and then having this large vacuum which then gets occupied by activists because you know it's a vacuum there's this no answers to one, two, three, four, five. there are politics which looks like they are from the onion but they are not from the onion and then what happens is that if you're lucky you have a core groups of people in different spheres of life that are mobilizing the people but this is what keeps democracy alive Engagement of the people, defending of the pillars, protecting the institutions, sticking to what you have with your vote of your hand instead of taking democracy for granted and just sitting home as a couch potato, because uh, no democracy will sustain if the people abandon it. It is in the nature of the politicians to abuse power, full stop. This is the nature. Maybe there are some exemptions to this, some rare exemptions to this. If you know some, show me, I'm going to buy a drink. But basically, if system is not protected from below, if people are not active, if satirists are not making a watchful eye, and then if it's not followed up by the action to keep your officials accountable, then you are slipping to apathy. And apathy is the new tool for dictators. Listen, it's not the fear that prevents a lot of dictatorships from being stable in the world. It's because the people lost hope that anything can change. This is more dangerous than the fear. Because fear, you can break fear. And once the fear breaks, it's very difficult to reverse it if you're not ready to kill 20,000 people like Assad. But the real problem is that, that when you're looking at these societies, which are the toughest cracker to break in terms of autocracy, places like Russia, everybody's so apathetic. How many people participate in elections? Forty-some percent? They, they just, they know they're fed up, they want to stay off this circus and so on. So this is exactly the thin line you don't want to go with the satire and everything. You don't want to make people dizzy and shy of things. You want to make people more intelligent, more ready to debunk things, but you also want to provoke their action. This is what the social change really means. You want to make them more serious, especially when they're joking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good, fine line.
0: Well, it has been a joy speaking with you both. Sergey Popovich and Sophia McLennan, thank you so much for speaking with me.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Pleasure being here. I've been speaking with author and professor, Sophia McLennan, and with author, activist, and laftivist tivist Popovich. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Pascash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles.